In our first episode this season, we talked about how my dad wrote this book, Pathlet by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. In episode two, we talked about Jim Thorpe's life and some of the details in the book. And today, we're going to continue that conversation. Um, I think it's important to touch on what happened um, around this time with Jim Thorpe. And you talked about amateurism um, and... Um, and in a sense, getting paid to play sports would be what would become so controversial um, in a system that, you know, was was quite rigged in some ways. Um, talk about when Jim Thorpe went to uh, the Eastern Carolina League, why he went and what would happen because of that. Jim Thorpe went to the Eastern Carolina League in 19, after the 1908 season in 1909 after the spring to play baseball. Um, and he basically was recruited by friends of Pop Warner's. Um, but literally hundreds of college athletes were going to play in the lowest rungs of the minor leagues, the Bush leagues of baseball, for minimal amounts of money, but as a way to keep busy in the summer. Um, they were all doing it, and the vast majority of them were playing under pseudonyms. Um, Jim Thorpe didn't. He played under the name Jim Thorpe uh, for first the Rocky Mount Railroaders mm -hmm. and then the Fayetteville Highlanders a year later. Um, now, th there's some questions that I can't totally answer, which have to do with his motivations. Did he think that that was the ticket to a major league career, and did he ever intend to go back to Carlisle? Um, but there's no question about the fact that Pop Warner, the coach at Carlisle, Moses Friedman, the superintendent at Carlisle, and um, James E. Sullivan, the head of the American um, of the Amateur Athletic Union and the head of the American Olympic Committee had every reason in the world to know what Jim was doing um, for a lot of different reasons, which I prove in the book and which I encourage people to read for that chapter alone. But um, in any case, uh, so he played there for two seasons. Um, he hurt his arm a little bit, but he was, you know, you could say he was an average baseball player, but that doesn't quite capture it. He was occasionally brilliant and occasionally not really Part of the game. He, he had trouble hitting the curveball. Um, he had trouble starting then with his drinking, with um, what would evolve into alcoholism. Um, and uh, he played for two years and then went off to play a little bit in Oklahoma after that. So he was gone from, from Carlisle um, from the spring of 1909 until 1911 when he came back and was, and was recruited back by Pop Warner. And, you know, for Pop Warner to claim, as he would uh, shortly thereafter, that he had no idea what Jim was doing is uh, stretches uh, belief. And then he comes back to Carlisle, the 1912 Olympics success. How long was, after that before someone well, snipped he, out mm -hmm, and decided to make him the, you know, the, the example? Yeah. Um, he came back from the Olympics, was a brilliant star in the fall, 
um, football season, an All-American again, the greatest player in America. Um, and then um, in early January of 1913, um, the story broke that he had played ball in the Eastern Carolina League. Now, a lot of people knew that beforehand, but there was some kind of a willing suspension of disbelief. And so um, it, this story sort of took on this enormous weight at that moment. And um, the people who had every reason to know what he was doing claimed that they didn't know. And the Olympic, uh, or actually the, the AAU and American Olympic people decided that he would have to give back his medal, all the medals and trophies he won in Stockholm. As it turned out, there was a rule uh, in the Olympics for that year that for someone to be deprived of their medals after the fact because of professionalism of any sort, it had to be reported within 60 days afterwards. And this was well over 60 days afterwards. So it really didn't even follow the rules for them to take away his medals. Mm. Um, and of course, there were so many other hypocrisies involved. The fact that Pop Warner was in fact paying his players before that, as mm -hmm. were most colleges to some degree or another. Um, as, as Leif Itterson, a great um, Olympic historian in Stockholm, pointed out to me, um, the, the uh, Swedish performers at those Olympics um, were allowed to leave their jobs many months earlier to train and paid for the training. So they were, in a sense, professionals in a more direct way than someone who was getting a little bit of money to play a sport that's not even in the Olympics, baseball. Um, so there were so many contradictions and hypocrisies involved. But um, in, in uh, you know, shortly into the new year of 1913, Jim Thorpe lost all of his Olympic medals and trophies. Um, and you go into great detail um, about how complicated um, sort of the um, the stories were from the men, as you said, who, who knew even before. Right. And you quote a passage from Jim's own, is it an autobiography that, that he wrote um, uh, in which you quoted, once I had made up my mind to face the world with truth, I was no longer nervous or worried about the matter. I adopted a fatalistic viewpoint and considered the episode just another event in the red man's life of ups and downs. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was in uh, Red Son of Carlisle, which um, he wrote with a, a ghostwriter as well involved in that, a screenwriter actually, or someone who wanted to turn it into a screenplay. Hmm. Um, but there, I found no indications that Jim Thorpe was ever himself being duplicitous about it, um, and that it was other people, more you know, people who had higher levels of responsibility, who to save their own reputations were duplicitous. You know, in someone else's life, that might be sort of the the arc of the story, <laughs> and then um, you know, either they go into obscurity or. Um, you know, whatever it may be. But in fact, this is just like the first part. <laughs> this is like really early in his life. He's a young man and his professional career is still young and he's already the greatest athlete in the world um, who's had one of the biggest 
publicized, um, um, you know, um, controversies uh, yes. also. Yes. But then he persists. And that's kind of a theme that you talked about just, to, you know, when we started talking that he is um, nothing if not persistent and um, keeps um, moving forward. Um, next up, it seems, is baseball. Is that fair to say that he leaves Carlisle and um, goes with the Giants? Um, yeah, he was signed by John McGraw, the little Napoleon, uh, Muggsy, the, the manager and boss of the New York baseball Giants um, in 1913. And um, he had played, Jim had played baseball at Carlisle. He had pitched and played first base. Um, in the spring of of nineteen uh, spring of nineteen eleven and twelve, but um, and he was quite you know he was a good ball player, but he wasn't. I mean, baseball in some ways is it's not the hardest sport, but it requires uh, a lot of practice and, and skills that, that some of the other sports don't require. Um, and he hadn't played that much baseball. Um, and he had not been, you know, he played in the Bush Leagues in Eastern Carolina, but he, most players go through four or five years of minor league baseball before they reach the majors. Um, McGraw wanted Thorpe right away because he was a, he was a salesman too, and he understood that they had already decided that the Giants and the Chicago White Sox would go on a world tour after that season, after the 1913 season. And people in Japan and the Philippines and England um, and Australia and Egypt, they hadn't heard of Christy Mathewson, the great left, you know, the big six of the Giants, um, but they'd heard of Jim Thorpe. Um, and he was really the number one draw for that entire world tour. And that's why... McGraw signed him. So in the 1913 season, and several seasons thereafter, Jim didn't really get much of an opportunity to play for McGraw's Giants. He sat on the bench most of the time um, and struggled and was sent to the minor leagues. Um, and you'll see that it was only in his later career that he really started to learn baseball um, and had a brilliant season for the Boston Braves um, and then several great seasons in the minor leagues, the top minor leagues after that. Um, but he was already in his mid-30s by then. So McGraw, I think, um, misused Jim Thorpe for most of his baseball career. That's not to say that he didn't have some holes in his game. He, he did have struggled with the curveball, at least for the first few years. Um, but he had a lot of baseball raw talent as well that, McGraw really didn't take advantage of. And you you indicate, I think, that he was almost, um, the fact that he was so famous already almost was a hindrance to him growing the way uh, uh, a typical baseball player might grow in anonymity at first and then, you know, through the minors and so forth. Exactly. There was a lot of... And he also prep. had those great expectations. You know, the greatest yeah. athlete in the world must be a great baseball player as well. Right. Um, if, you know, so many episodes of, of Jim Thorpe's life could, are cinematic the way you describe them, but the world tour 
you know, with his new wife and you call it the, the train to party Grand Central Station that Friday morning was called the honeymoon special. <laughs> and this is the, um, the baseball team that's about to tour the country and then tour the world. Um, and, uh, just you, how did you get the diary of Jim's first wife or her entries and descriptions of everything that happened? Well, it was through um, a, another um, a librarian at, he was then at uh, Lehigh University named James Elfers, who became, decided to become an expert on that world tour. Wow. <laughs> and I wrote him and he invited me up to his house and in Pennsylvania and gave me a box full of material and he had been able to get that diary from Grace Thorpe when she was still alive, Jim's daughter. Mm. Um, by the time I started research, Grace was gone, so I couldn't have gotten it through that. But um, James had a, um, a copy of it and let me copy his copy and that's how I got it. Um, <laughs> along with uh, several other, um, not primary documents, but close to it. In other words, uh, one of the one of the uh, people went along with Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, kept his own diary and then used that printed that diary in a, in a magazine. So I got that as well, and several other um, accounts, including one by the great Ring Lardner, who didn't actually go on the second part of the trip, but wrote about it um, in one of his great um, short stories um, from You Know Me, Al, which is just hilarious, um, and where he, his main character, the whole short story is about this Rube Pitcher character um, being sweet-talked by McGraw and the White Sox manager into going across the ocean with them. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's anybody who hasn't read Ring Larder should read You Know Me Al just for that chapter alone. But in any case, um, there were so many rich places that I could go to um, to describe that world tour. Damon Runyon covered parts of it, uh, the mm -hmm. great uh, Guys and Dolls uh, guy, you know, he, he went and met the, the uh, tour in France. He, he did the, the cushy part of the tour. Um, right. Went to, from France to England with them. Um, and there were probably 12 or 15 reporters, scribes along the trip, and all of their uh, accounts uh, were available to me online. You know, I could find them in the newspapers. So it was pretty rich material. It's, it's an amazing um, time of travel and then the world stage, you know, you're writing, saying it's just before World War One. Um, uh, you know, it's like the, uh, it's just this um, moment lost now forever. You know, the, the world is going to change and, yes. and the modern world is like on the, on the horizon. Um, and they even sail on the SS Lusitania. Is they that correct? They on the Lusitania, yes. <laughs> You know, it's just all these overlapping. I mean, Jim Thorpe's life overlaps with so many moments. Um, even the E.L. Doctorow um, <laughs> uh, scene you mentioned, uh, what was that based on exactly? That, uh, well, that was a ragtime. Right. It's a right. scene in ragtime when, when uh, 
a doctor who imagined what it would have been like for one of his characters to encounter McGraw in the Giants playing baseball um, in the sands near the Sphinx outside of Cairo. <laughs> it's a great scene. Yeah, yeah it's just um, kind of magical. Um, and um, another character then that is really prominent in that, of course, is his uh, Jim Thorpe's um, wife, who he met at the Carlisle School. Um, and um, the story of her being there, I think, really shows the, how complicated um, the relationship is in our country in terms of, as you say, um, um, both, um, you know, um, the dominant society, white society, both taking from Native Americans and also, um, in a sense, idolizing them at the same time. And in fact, can you talk a bit about Jim's wife? Sure. Yeah, yeah, her name was Iva Miller. Mm -hmm. um, she came from Oklahoma. Um, she'd gone to the Chiloco Indian School in Oklahoma and then to Carlisle. And she had gone to Chiloco when she was a little girl, along with her older siblings, after her mother died and her father wanted really nothing to do with them at that point. And she went to an Indian school, and she thought she was a Cherokee Indian. And it wasn't until much later um, that her older siblings told her, well, not really. We were just sent there by um, our father because it was a free place for him to get rid of us. And so um, there's some question about when she learned this, whether it was before she married Jim or a little bit after um, but it wasn't until she was an adult that she realized that actually she wasn't a Native American at all. Although, you know, I mean, she had a she she grew up with a Native American sensibility. Um, she'd gone to all the Indian schools. She knew she knew Cherokee culture. She'd gone with the Shiloko School to the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis, um, mm -hmm. where she was part of sort of a somewhat uh, dehumanizing um, exhibit of, of, of Indians in America. Um, and, 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 you know, at, at Carlisle, she wrote about um, the Indian experience quite a bit in the local uh, the student newspaper. Um, so, you know, when is an Indian an Indian? I mean, what, what, what was she? Um, mm -hmm. And it's the whole issue of, of blood quantum, in her case, um, culturally, she was uh, a Native American, at least in her childhood and young adulthood. After that, she sort of was not. Um, but in terms of blood quantum, as that's measured, she, she did not have Indian heritage. Right. Um, the um, honeymoon is over, uh, quite literally, and um, eventually... Um, uh, Jim, um, and I mean, I, I, anyone listening, there's so much, um, 650. Oh, yeah. we, can, we can skip wherever you want. So we're yeah, bad, but anyway, um, you know, next comes football, professional football. And I love yeah. this line that you have here. Um, <laughs> you have a quote saying it's somebody, a sports writer in 1920 says professional football may pay in places where there is not the lure of big college contests. But it will never rival the amateur brand. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I guess sports prognosticators are no better than political ones. <laughs> right. Um, you have the American Professional Football Association, September 17th, 1920. Jim Thorpe is president. So what did that mean in 1920? Well, he, he played football for the Kenton Bulldogs um, going back to 1915. And okay. he was the, the face of the game. And football was not, professional football was still kind of a roustabout sport. Um, it wasn't like Major League Baseball or boxing or tennis um, or horse racing. Those were the big sports of that era. And foot, professional football was a little bit more outlawish. Um, but finally, in 1920, it started to really organize into what would become the National Football League. And because it was organized in Canton, Ohio, where Jim Thorpe played, um, and because he was the by far the best-known figure in the game, they decided to make him the first president of that league. Um, it didn't entail really any responsibilities, but it was a way of sort of saying we're serious. Um, so he was the president for the first year um, only, and then they got someone in there who had more business um, skills and interest, and Jim really had no interest in doing anything but playing football or maybe coaching it, which he also did during that period. Right. Um, but he, from 1915 um, into the early 1920s, um, as, uh, you know, one of the great um, football historians, Bob Carroll, says that, that when Jim Thorpe entered pro football, it was really the most important event of early football. Um, that, that really was the beginning of the rise of football, which would continue off and on through the 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, and then completely mushroom in the 1960s from then to today into the biggest event um, in American life in so many ways. You know, I'm now working on a story about Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, and he points out that more people, that the number one draw on television by far of anything, Dallas Cowboys, uh, more than any other show or anything else, that when the Dallas Cowboys play, that's it. Of course, I'm a Packers fan, so I can dispute that a little bit. But in terms of statistics, um, it's indisputable. Well, I'm in, um, you know, <laughs> in Patriots land. I'm in Patriots country here, so I wonder, you know, if uh, <laughs> the right. statistics are different. That doesn't mean the Cowboys yeah. are the best. It doesn't mean I can't still hate them. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a rival of the Packers. Right, right. Um, you know, so that, that Jim Thorpe was the beginning of all of that. And, you know, adding on to his Olympic gold medals and his baseball, professional football is another part of his right. incredible and, career. You know, uh, football is a physical sport. And he's, uh, as you follow the story of his life, he gets um, into his 30s, you know, and later 30s and so forth. And eventually... Some of his, um, and you know, it was, it's so funny because he, um, you talk about how it's not just natural talent. He's a hard worker. He's a persistent um, uh, person, but, but his body ages. And, and you do mention that he um, uh, has, um, 
uh, an addiction to alcohol that takes its toll as well. And so somehow, you know, we start to see this, um, this shift in his athletic consistency and career. Um, and it goes on for um, chapters um, <laughs> where we're rooting for him and, and we hope he'll get his break. We want him to land on his feet and have a consistent um, team or, or career. And there's one point I just made a tally of the number of, um, well, first of all, you said, how many states did he play a sport in? Was it? I think it was 20 states. 20 states. Um, yeah. And that he either played a sport in or lived in during that period. Yeah. Yeah. But and I made a, a. Go on. I'm sorry. I made a list of odd jobs that he took um, when he wasn't oh. um, with a team or survival after his athletic prime. The Bunyan Derby, drop kicking lessons at Rancho Country Club, Pebble Beach bodyguard for president of the California Golf Writers Association. Um, he goes to L.A. to play um, the roles of, of Native Americans in films. He's a painter's assistant. He tries to sell oil leases near Venice. He has an entry-level job for the county loading dirt onto trucks or a day laborer. Um, he landed a job at a Ford Motor Company um, plant and um, joins the Merchant Marines as a ship's carpenter during World War II, yeah. to name a few. That's just a partial list, I know, yeah. You know, it's interesting, Sarah. Um, just uh, yesterday, I got an email from from a, uh, someone who's read the book and is going to interview me in Dallas when I go there. And it was we got an interesting um, disagreement. I mean, he, he sort of was looking at, Thorpe's life as a failure um, and that Jim was a disappointing human being um, mm. and I really, you know I, I guess you can read, you know, one of the things about the way I write books is people can make up their own minds about, about how they view a character um, I'm not going to beat them over the head but I do in this book make it pretty clear that I don't feel that way that I for all of his troubles, I think he was a, had a generous human spirit and was a troubled man, as are many people, and especially athletes after their skills are gone. Um, and so um, I viewed all of his efforts in the sense of perseverance against the odds and not as, oh, what a, you know, what a loser of a human being. I'm not saying that he said that, but but I think that um, I came out of it with more sympathy for Jim Thorpe than just as an heroic uh, athlete um, because of all that he endured and went through and struggles. And, and, you know, I mean, millions of people struggle with their own um, phobias and flaws and work their whole lives to try to overcome them and deal with them and persist anyway. And so Jim Thorpe had both that incredible um, athletic career unmatched and also was a human being who was dealing with his own troubles and trying to overcome them in just different ways. Well, he as, never well as, as well as the structural um, problems that he had overcome or tried to overcome as a Native American. And 
we don't you don't use presentism to explain sort of the world of the past, but if you were to look at it through trauma and displacement and um, what he how alone he was as a young person and um, uh, you know it I, I don't know if most people could come through that um, uh, with two feet on the ground um, well I mean you know he, he had a difficult father to say the least um, who was also an alcoholic and really um, didn't want Jim around. His mother died when he was young. Um, his his twin brother died when they were kids, um, the closest person to him in the world. Um, his first son, Jim Jr., died at age three of uh, um, the great influenza. So, right. you know, along with everything else, he had, uh, he, you know, just in his internal personal life, there was a lot of trauma. Yeah. But the other thing that is interesting is he he wasn't too proud to take jobs that um, you know that were um, labor jobs or or um, not glamorous. Um, and when he joined the Merchant Marines during World War II, again, you know these stories of him traveling the world and and the sort of the cameos of famous people. Um, entering his life at various times. You described something during World War II where he's on the ship um, and it docks in Calcutta and word reached Port Commander at Army Base Station that Jim Thorpe was aboard. Commander Brigadier General uh, uh, Neeland, who was an Army plebe in 1912 and sat in the stands during that big Army uh, Carlisle game, um, <laughs> summoned not the captain, but the lowly carpenter of the Liberty ship to be his special guest on shore. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I know it, it, that happened so many times in his life. And, and Neyland is a, you know, for people who know college football, Neyland is a well-known figure. University of Tennessee Stadium is Neyland Stadium. He was the great football coach at University of Tennessee for decades. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the one person that he wanted to see when that ship, that merchant ship, victory ship arrived in Calcutta was the carpenter. Right, Jim Thorpe. Um, everyone will ask you about Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and they're going to have to read the book to know the full story. Um, and I, I, you had a great interview with um, Jim Thorpe's, is it great-grandson? Great Jim Kowski, who had some, yes, um, uh, just a very, um, uh, uh, I thought, wide perspective on the meaning of Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and how the family um, looks at the, the sort of the duality of that um, right. situation there. Um, but I think it's best described in the book, as well as Jim's third wife, um, who is an interesting character as well. Again, um, another uh, slice of what would be a, an interesting movie, but there's a real movie um, <laughs> that I wanted to end with because okay, you... Sure. I think the image that you leave us with, at least the one that sticks in my mind towards the end, it reminds me of um, the famous painting, you know, or not painting, photograph of, um, um, and I'm not sure uh, which photographer took it, but, you know, the the billboard of America, white family in the um, 
in oh, the right. car and then there's a line of people who who need assistance yes. just the dichotomy between the american dream and how uh, our lives actually are and so you know obviously the big movie that finally got made about jim thorpe with burt lancaster um but then you leave us of course with what jim thorpe the human uh real man is is um contending with but how did the movie finally get made, do you think? And um, should there be another movie now? <laughs> so the answer to the second one is yes, of course. <laughs> okay. As I've said many times, all my books are in various stages of not being made into movies. It doesn't have to be for my book, but I think there's so much great material there that, that the first movie missed. Um, you know, in its time and place, that movie was considered a success. It had Burt Lancaster playing Jim Thorpe. And he's a good actor and a star quality actor, and he was a good athlete and so on. But I think, as I said in the last interview, I, I think that it totally missed the boat in terms of how it presented the story through the hero, you know, the, the savior of the movie is Pop Warner, not Jim Thorpe. And it doesn't really, it makes it look as though um, if only Jim had followed Pop Warner's advice, he would have had a more successful life. Um, when, in fact, Pop Warner was the one who, at the moment of Jim's biggest crisis, um, wasn't there for him. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, um, I watched that movie probably 12 times. Um, and uh, um, I uh, found it... Um, lacking in that sense that it wasn't presented from a, a Native American perspective, but from a white perspective. But this is the 1950s, and Jim, by then, had spent 33 decades in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, pushing for Hollywood to first hire real indigenous people to play Native Americans, and second, to, to give them some dignity in the roles that they had. So... Mm -hmm. In that sense, you know, I, I know a lot of people my age or a little younger who've watched that movie and said that's how they came to love Jim Thorpe, um, which is fine. I mean, if it, that's the effect it has, fine, but it's not the real story. And there should be a, a story that's closer to the reality of what he endured. Mm -hmm. And um, Jim's time in Hollywood, he, that phase of his life, in a sense, he seems to come into his own in a different way, even though sports is not sort of the predominant part of him. But his sense of um, uh, being a leader in his community, in a way, the word that you, you um, uh, the sack, sack and fox word for caregiver is uh, the word uh, that... Yes, I didn't come up with that word. Um another um, uh, uh, person who's researched thought figured that out and I attribute it to him in the notes. But, but yes, I mean, he, that was one of the um, a period of Jim's life where he was developing leadership skills beyond the, the playing fields. Um, there are a few hundred Native Americans in the Hollywood area, all of whom were scrounging around for big parts in movies, um, playing Indians or whatever they could, um, and often they were fighting for those jobs against the system that was 
often using white uh, walk-on actors and just giving them grease paint to make them look like they were Indians. So Jim, Jim was a, a very activist uh, participant in that era trying to get Indian rights in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you say as well in terms of Jim's legacy is the family and the um, uh, sort of the, the, the reach of his family, his legacy, essentially. Um, and uh, I know you've gotten to talk with um, his great grandson, but um, uh, what do you think um, uh, the, you know, the, the reader who, who reads this or um, uh, anyone listening to this podcast, like talk a little bit about um, just how that scope of Jim Thorpe has it continued no, I, to grow? I mean, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it, it surprised me a little bit, but um, in the best possible way that he had seven children. Um, three daughters and four sons by different wives. And um, during the periods of their childhoods, he was often not there or traveling, you know, trying to find work in other places and and um, separated from his family in different ways. Um, and yet all seven of those children, as they reached early adulthood, sort of came back to him without too much psychological damage in their relationships with him and came to appreciate him for what he was and came to understand their own heritage a little more. Um, and then and they were all successful. And, you know, Grace and Charlotte and Gail were all in various ways activists in terms of Indian rights or rights for their father, um, as were the, the sons who were Many of the sons went into the military and fought for the United States in World War II um, and Korea. Um, and uh, they had successful lives. One became the chairman of the Sac and Fox Nation. Um, one worked in the airline industry. Grace uh, became the, the spokesman for the American Indian Movement when it took over uh, Alcatraz in the 1960s, late 1960s. Um, so... And then their their children and their and the great grandchildren, all of you know there are a lot of really successful, um, well-adjusted people in that Thorpe family tree, all stemming from his somewhat troubled life. Path lit by lightning: The Life of Jim Thorpe is available online and at bookstores on August 9th. Visit davidmarinus.com to order your copy. This has been an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating and review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by metamorphosis.agency. Music has been written and provided by Monika Ryan. Ink in Our Blood is hosted by Sarah Marinus Vandershaft. Thank you for listening. <laughs>